0: I should like to call your attention once more to the words which are to be found in the 107th Psalm, reading from verse 33 to the end of the psalm, Psalm number 107, from verse 33 to the end of the psalm. He turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground the fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water and dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell that they may prepare a city for habitation and sow the fields and plant vineyards which may yield fruits of increase. He blesseth them also so that they are multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction, and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Those who attend here regularly will know that we are considering this great and mighty psalm for the seventh time. It's a remarkable psalm. The division, in a sense, is this. There is an introduction in the first three verses in which the men says, O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed out, out from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, he is anxious that all the redeemed should praise God in this way. Uh, He knows that the redeemed are ready to do so because they have experienced God's good hand in redemption. So he goes on to invite them to join with him in praising God in this way. Whatever their particular experiences may have been, that doesn't matter. He doesn't care what they are by nature or by temperament. It matters not at all to him. Uh, what particular troubles they may have been in. The great thing is that they've all had the experience of God's grace and of God's salvation. And you remember, he sets all that out by painting his four marvelous pictures. There are four great pictures in this psalm which we considered separately on particular Sunday evenings. The first picture, you remember, of people traveling in the wilderness... Trying to find a city to dwell in, but unable to find it. And becoming weary and tired and forlorn. And wondering what was to happen to them. And then crying out unto the Lord in their distress. And he heard them and delivered them and brought them to the city. Then you remember the second picture of people there in the prison cells. Bound with iron. Great gates of brass and bars of iron. Shutting them from the outside world. You mean prison. But how they again cried out in their hopelessness and in their distress and he delivered them, and then the scene in the bedroom of people pining away, just disappearing out of inanition, a kind of canker eating out the vitals of their lives, and again they cry out and the Lord delivers them, and then the final picture of the storm at sea. And the people there on, on the little boat on their with their wits' ends reeling and staggering like a drunken man, wondering what moment they were going to go down in utter helplessness. And they again cry out, and the Lord heard them and delivered them out of their distresses. Now that's how he sets it out before us. And he finishes that, you remember, at the end of verse 32. But he doesn't stop, he goes on. And he then adds this portion, which I've just read to you which we are considering together again this evening. Now, I asked in considering this last Sunday night, why do you think the psalmist went on like this? Why didn't he stop at the end of verse 32? When he's painted his four marvelous pictures, why didn't he give up at that point? Well, the answer is this, that he knows us so well, and he was such a fine teacher. He knows that it isn't enough just to put pictures before people. They need explanation. The truth has to be driven home. Pictures can affect us superficially and for a while. Yes, but uh, salvation ultimately comes through the word and through preaching and understanding. That's his great word. They shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So, having painted his pictures, he says, Now, do you realize what I've said in those pictures? Do you realize the message? You see, the men never drew his pictures never painted them in order to entertain us. His concern was to preach. He wants to give truth. He he b- believes that the whole creation and the whole of the universe ought to be perpetually singing the praises of God. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. But he knows that everybody isn't doing that. And why are they not doing it? Well, the answer is always ignorance. It's because we are not aware of certain things that we are not constantly praising God. And now that's the theme that he develops here in this concluding portion. If only, he seems to say, I could get you to see the point of these pictures. Listen, he seems to say, to these people who are praising God. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Why don't they do so? Why doesn't everybody praise God? Is there praise in your heart, I wonder, even as I'm speaking at this moment? Are you praising God? Do you constantly do so? For his wonderful works to the children of men is wonderful works to you. Now, according to this man, if you're not doing that, you are not as you were meant to be. You are not as you ought to be. And he says the only explanation of it is, in some shape or form, ignorance. So here in this uh, concluding portion, he extracts the great principles which he's been teaching in his four pictures, and he holds them before us. Now, I suggested that they are these. The most important thing in life, according to the psalmist, is our relationship to God. That is the greatest and the most important thing of all. And that is why we say that Christian preaching always confronts men with the biggest and the greatest and the most important thing in life. There are probably meetings being held in this country and in other countries tonight to consider other matters, and they're all of importance. Alas, there are some holding political meetings tonight, and they're considering the present world crisis, the present situation. There are others who are met together to have cultural discussions about art and literature and music. There are things like that. Again, they have their importance. They shouldn't be doing such things on a Sunday, that's not my point at the moment, but they are doing it, and they do these things on weekday. But the whole message of the Bible is this, that while all those things have their place and their importance, there is nothing which compares in importance with this, a man's relationship to God. Because after this world has gone and has passed away, we'll still be face to face with God. Whether there's a war, whether there isn't a war, whether an international arrangement and agreement is possible or not, still the soul remains and God remains and there we are face to face with him. This is the most important thing of all. And indeed, in life in this world, nothing matters but our relationship to God. We saw that last Sunday night. And then it follows from that, obviously, that the next important thing is that we should know the truth about God, therefore. If the biggest thing for me is my relationship to God, well then, I I, I want to know the truth about God. And here he tells us about it. Now, we considered one aspect of it last Sunday evening, you remember, which was this. That God is righteous, that God is just, that God is holy, that God is great, that God is mighty, that God is all-powerful, that there is no end to his might and to his power, that God is the judge eternal, which no man can evade and no man can escape. The judge of all the earth. God. The Almighty. You remember how I showed you that the man tells us all that here. He turneth rivers into a wilderness. And water springs into dry ground. A fruitful land into barrenness. And God has done things like this in history. And then do you remember that striking phrase? He poureth contempt upon princes. Do you remember how he reduced a man like Nebuchadnezzar? Almost to the condition of an ox. Nebuchadnezzar stood up and said that he was a god and that men must worship him. And God poured his contempt upon him. And he was out in the fields And his hair grew and his nails grew like talons. And there he was eating grass like an ox. He poureth contempt upon princes. Read your Old Testament history. And there you'll find case after case of this very thing. And there's a most notable one in the New Testament. In the twelfth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, a king called Herod, seated upon the throne in his royal apparel and delivering a great oration. And the people cried out, saying, these are the words of a God and not of a man. And he allowed them to say so. But not for long, because God sent an angel who smote him, and he was consumed with worms, and gave up the ghost, he poureth contempt upon princes. That is the God with whom we have to do, says this man. And the essence of wisdom in this life and in this world is to realize that whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. The trouble with men and women is that they don't understand these things. The world doesn't know God. The Bible keeps on saying so. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. It's not surprising that people think as they do and say the things they do about God. It's nothing but sheer ignorance. They don't know God. If only they knew God and understood these things, why their whole life would be different and the whole world would be different. Very well then, this man's object is to enlighten us about these things. But thank God he doesn't stop there. Having told us something about the character of God and the greatness and the might and the authority of God as our judge eternal, he then tells us something about God as our savior, about the salvation of God. Did you notice the alternation as I read this last passage? One side, then the other side. How he keeps on putting the two sides before us. God's salvation. He started off by saying, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. But why don't they? Well, they don't because they don't understand this salvation of him. You know, that's really the ultimate explanation of why anybody in the world tonight isn't a Christian. That is the final explanation of the non Christian position. They just don't know and they don't understand God's way of salvation. It's because somewhere or another they've got wrong ideas about this. They've never understood it. If only they knew it, if only they believed it and rejoiced and began to experience it, they'd rejoice in it. That's why, you see, he gives his invitation. Oh, give thanks, he says unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Did you know that, my friend? I ask again, are you praising God? Are you thanking God? Is there a song of praise and of thanksgiving in your heart? Are you ready to join this man's great choir that he's assembling together from the east and the west and the north and the south to sing the praises of God? Or do you say, well, I'm not conscious of a sense of praise and of thanksgiving. I don't want to thank God. I don't see any reason for thanking God. I'm finding life very difficult and the world very difficult. Thanking God? Why? My attitude is this. If there is a God, well, why are things as they are? And why is he allowing things to be as they are? I can't praise God. I'm not conscious of his goodness. I say, if that is the position, it is because somewhere or another you don't understand God's way of salvation. You've got wrong ideas about it. And these wrong ideas about God's salvation are so many. Well, very well, let us get our minds disabused tonight of these erroneous conceptions of God's salvation and its way, and look at it as it is unfolded and expounded to us by the psalmist in this concluding section. I pick out, therefore, these certain verses in which he emphasizes this particular aspect. But let me put it to you in the form of principles. What are the characteristics of this salvation that God gives to men and women? Well, the first thing we must say about it in the light of this description is that it is a complete reversal of all our natural ideas. I always like to start with that principle as I preach this gospel. The gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reverses all our human, our natural ideas. It turns them literally upside down. There's nothing else in the world like it. It is absolutely unique and alone. Now, there are many people who obviously don't agree with that (coughs) because they betray themselves in the things they say. They talk about great religious teachers and great religious geniuses. They bring out their lists. They talk about Moses and Jeremiah, and they talk about uh, Buddha and Confucius and the Christ and others. Not by saying that, they're at once telling us that they've never understood the first thing about the Christian way of salvation, which is its uniqueness. It isn't a philosophy in series with a whole host of other philosophies. It isn't just a teaching like others. It's entirely different. There's nothing like it. It is entirely on its own. You see, he puts it in this way. This is how the psalmist puts it. He says, he turneth the wilderness into standing water and dry ground into water spring. Who would expect anything like that? Is that the sort of thing we find happening in this life and in this world? Do you suddenly turn round a corner and suddenly find a wilderness becoming standing water? And a dry barren ground suddenly springing up. Ah, says somebody, life isn't like that, you know. You get that sort of thing in the fairy tales and in the fantasies, but, uh, but that's not life. Life, unfortunately, says the man, isn't like that. It's hard, it's a grind, it's cruel. And you don't suddenly get these amazing reversals and surprise. No, no. A man says life isn't like that. Well, that's natural, men. You see, thinking about God's way of salvation. But the whole of the New Testament gives us the exact opposite impression. Do you remember how it starts? An old priest goes into the temple to do his duty. And suddenly sees an angel. He wasn't expecting it, but the the angel suddenly appeared. And says to him, Zacharias, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. It can't happen to them, and it's impossible. Don't you know how old we are? This thing can't take place. But that was the announcement, and it did take place. And on it goes, I mustn't keep you. You remember the angel going to Mary. And talking to her about that holy thing that's going to be born out of her, she says, how can this thing be? I've never known a man. Nevertheless, it was to be, and it did happen. Now, you see, we're in a realm which is altogether different. It's not like anything else. Now, the Christian gospel claims this. It says this. You see, the tragedy is that we all start with the other idea and the other prejudice. That Christianity is just a higher form of morality. A morality touched with emotion or something like that, as Matthew Arnold put it. And that it really depends upon what we do and so on. And we are not expecting this kind of thing. But this is the gospel. The reversal of all our thinking and all our ideas. Absolutely different in every way. And, of course, because of that, the second thing I must say about it is that it's quite surprising. I'll go further and say that it's quite incredible to the natural man. You read this sort of thing and you say, well, of course, that's typical of the poets, their imagery and their hyperbole, their vivid imaginations. The poets like doing this sort of thing and playing with ideas, but it's all poetry. My dear friends, it isn't poetry, this is fact. And uh, you find the Apostle Paul putting it in his own particular way in his various epistles in the New Testament. He says, The natural man understandeth not, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. And the Greeks, when they were confronted with this gospel, they laughed at it, they dismissed it, they ridiculed it. They said, fancy asking us to believe something like that, that a carpenter in a little land like Palestine of everywhere is the Savior, and that he saves not by propounding a great new philosophic system, but by being crucified in utter weakness upon a cross on a hill called Calvary rubbish and nonsense, sheer folly. That's what they said. And of course they said it because it was, as I say, such a reversal of all they'd ever thought and and had ever imagined. But you know the gospel of Jesus Christ is surprising. And if it hasn't come to us as a surprise, we really never have known it. Indeed, if you've never felt about the gospel, that there is something almost incredible about it. You haven't got the real thing. It is something, I say, that is so counter to the natural human ideas that it appears to be utter fancy and fantasy and foolishness. Now, there are the general statements, but let me break it up and give it you more in particular. In what particular respects does this gospel reverse all our ideas? In what respects does it come as a surprise to us, as an amazing announcement? In what ways does it seem to be almost incredible to us? Well, here's the first. The first is that it demands nothing of us. Nothing whatsoever. Listen to this man. He puts it like this. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water. Man by nature is but as the wilderness. He turns the dry ground into water springs. Man by nature is nothing but dry ground. There he maketh the hungry to dwell. Man by nature is hungry, that they may prepare a city of habitation. He's got no certain and secure dwelling, and so on. And here it is again later on. Having said that he poureth contempt upon princes and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way, yet he saith, yet he goes on to say, he setteth the poor on high from affliction and maketh him families like a flock. My first principle, therefore, is that the gospel, this way of salvation, demands nothing of us at all. It tells us that we are in a state of barrenness, we are as a dry ground, a wilderness, and we are in a state of extreme poverty. Now, that is the New Testament doctrine, isn't it? The New Testament comes to us and tells us that we are born into this world in a state of sin, and that we aggravate it and increase it and bring ourselves to this condition of complete barrenness, spiritual barrenness, spiritual poverty, that we are penniless and helpless and we've got nothing whatsoever. Well, if you don't agree with that, let me prove it to you. Would you like to know how much you possess by way of spiritual possession? Well, test yourself by this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. Are we doing that? That's the way to test this well. Then test it in terms of love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, meekness, gentleness, faith, temperance. How much of this fruit do we possess and are we producing? That's the way to face it. Now, the Bible tells us that we are in this state of barrenness and dryness, of utter extreme poverty. But, and this is the astounding thing, that makes no difference at all. God demands nothing of us but the recognition of that. He doesn't demand of us goodness, he doesn't demand of us morality, he doesn't demand of us works, he doesn't demand of us right ideals and ideas and wonderful conceptions of life and understanding. He makes no such demand at all. And the wonderful thing is that our lack of these things and our extreme poverty is no hindrance whatsoever. You see, nothing is demanded of this wilderness, nothing is demanded of this barrenness, nothing is demanded of this dryness and of this poverty. But surely this is the very point at which we all, by nature, tend to go astray. We all tend to think that becoming Christian and sharing in the Christian salvation is something that is the result of our goodness. Or our morality, or our working, or fasting, or praying, or sweating, or something like that. Isn't that what we think? We say, I'm going to make myself a Christian. By my own efforts, I'm going to make myself a good man. And we are going to do this. But the gospel confronts us by the exact opposite. It says, all your righteousness is but as filthy rags. All the things that even a soul of Tarsus could boast of are nothing but dung and loss and refuse. You see, the man who thinks himself the most wealthy when he confronts this is proved to be a pauper. He's got nothing at all. Wilderness, barrenness, extreme poverty and helplessness. Now, this is the glorious thing about this salvation, that far from telling us that because we are like that we are hopeless, it tells us in a sense that that is the very condition to receiving the salvation. Did you notice the four pictures and how they brought out this point? These four people, these types of persons depicted by the psalmist, they end by praising God. Well, what was it that led them to praise God? Well, wasn't it this, that in their distress? They cried out unto the Lord and he delivered them out of their distresses. They did nothing at all but just cry out. It wasn't that they'd made some superhuman effort and at last extricated themselves out of their troubles. They couldn't. The wanderers in the wilderness couldn't find the way. The men in the prison cell couldn't break the bars of iron and smash the gates of brass. The men dying on the sickbed couldn't suddenly rejuvenate himself, and revivify himself, and no man can quell a storm at sea. No, no, they were utterly, absolutely helpless. All they did was to cry out in their distress. That's the Old Testament way of putting it, but you remember how Christ himself, our blessed Lord and Savior, puts it. He puts it like this. I came not to call the righteous, But sinners to repentance, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick, he was the friend of publicans and sinners. His whole trouble indeed was with people like the Pharisees, who said, no, no, you're wrong. What makes a man right with God is a man's own effort and his own striving. And it's our righteousness that's going to put us right with God. He was saying the exact opposite. They so hated him for saying it that they crucified him. But it is the essence of the gospel message. You see, we with our high ideas of ourselves and of our abilities, We believe that we have it in us even to put ourselves right with God. We think that our efforts and our moralities are going to be enough and that we really can raise ourselves up. The gospel replies by saying, you're a wilderness, you're a barrenness, you're a dry ground, you're a pauper. But I say the marvelous thing about it is this, That that is the very condition of salvation. A hymn puts it very well. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Nothing else at all. You see, the condition in which God likes to see people coming is this. He likes to see people coming who say, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, with nothing at all, absolutely nothing, just as I am, without one plea, nothing at all but that thy blood was shed for me. Am I making it plain, don't you see, my dear friend, that this is a reversal of everything that men thinks and expects? People like to think of Jesus Christ as just the greatest teacher the world has ever known, and the greatest moral exemplar, and their, their idea of salvation is this, that having read the New Testament, or having lit- read, listened to expositions on it, having got a picture of Christ in their minds, they say, now then, I'm going to be like him, the imitation of Christ, I'm going to walk after him, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to make great sacrifices, I'll give up money, I'll give up a great post, I'll go to the heart of Africa, I'm going to do this, and I'll do that, and I'm going to be like him, I'm doing it. But that's an utter denial of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is this. That you and I not only can do nothing, we are not expected to do anything. All the fitness he requireth is to see your need of him. He asks nothing of anyone tonight but just this. That you see yourself as you are in the sight of God. That you recognize your sin, your emptiness, your woe. That you visualize yourself on your deathbed, that you visualize yourself on the dread day of judgment standing before God and the law being put up against you, and the Sermon on the Mount, and the saints, and Christ Himself, and you having to say, Have you conformed to that? It just means that having faced that, you say, I'm a sinner. I don't know God, I haven't loved God, I haven't served God. I've lived to myself, I've been selfish, I've done things though I knew they were wrong. That's what he asks of us, that we see our need, our barrenness, our wilderness condition, and that we confess it, that we acknowledge it, that we go to him and say, I've no defense, I've no plea of mitigation to offer. I am this, and I've nothing to say except this, have mercy upon me, repentance. That's all he demands, that we recognize the wilderness, the poverty, the emptiness, and the woe. But let me go on to show you other respects in which it is the reversal of everything that we've ever thought. The second follows naturally from it. Salvation, as it makes no demands on us, depends entirely and only on what God does What God has done. Did you notice how this man puts it? He turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into a dry ground. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and dry grounds into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city of habitation. He blesseth them also, so that they are multiplied greatly. Again they are minished and brought low. He poureth contempt upon princes. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction. And maketh him families like a flock. It's God all along you see. And here again isn't it a complete reversal. Of everything that man thinks by nature. I was trying to speak about this again this morning. And you see, it's everywhere in the scriptures. You can't get away from it. Listen to Paul putting it in his own words. I am not ashamed, he says, of the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, here's the answer. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's what God's doing. It's a righteousness from God. My dear friend, the essence of salvation is this, what God has done in Christ. Christ and him crucified, says Paul, is the wisdom of God and he is the power of God. Listen to him as he goes on and says, when the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe." The world by wisdom knew not God. Plato had been, Socrates had been, Aristotle had been, the great philosophers had all been, and they'd all tried to find him, but they couldn't. The world by wisdom knew not God. Man had done his utmost his everything. He couldn't get there. And when that had come to pass, it pleased God. By the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of the thing preached. To save them that believe. And you remember how Paul works it out. How God reverses the whole conception of men. Turns all our systems completely upside down. He tells us that God has made foolish the wisdom of men. He's turned upside down all men's conceptions. In every respect and to every degree. It's there for us. In this first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That's it. And then take that great statement of it that I read to you, from the second epistle to the Corinthians in that fifth chapter at the beginning. There it is once more. God has committed to me, says Paul, this message, this gospel of reconciliation. What is it? Well, it's this. To wit, that God was in Christ for reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. It's God doing it. It's God's action. You see, we start with this opposite idea that we've got to do something. And the answer is no, no. God does it. Who can turn a wilderness into standing water but God? Who can turn this dry ground into water springs but the Lord God Almighty? But He has done it. And He's done it in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the very essence of the gospel message, isn't it? Here it is going to be portrayed before us in the communion service by means of bread and of wine, which represent the broken body and the shed blood of the only begotten Son of God. That's how God does it. He sent him into the world. The incarnation is God's action. He sends his son and prepares him a body. It was a miracle. The Holy Ghost came upon Mary. It was a virgin birth. That's God's way of doing it. He's doing it in this person. And He has even gone to the extent of laying upon him the iniquity of us all. He's put your sins and mine and our guilt Upon the person of his only begotten Son, he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's God's action. My dear friend, look at Calvary and there you see it. What's happening there? Oh, It isn't merely that certain cruel men have condemned him to death. The Pharisees and scribes and the Roman power were but the human instruments. That isn't what's happening there. Calvary is not just a human tragedy. It isn't just that men have done a certain thing. No, no, it's an eternal action. It's something that God is doing. God hath made him to be sin for us. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. And the Son was taking our sins upon himself in his own body on the tree. That's what's happening there. It's God. He turneth the wilderness into standing water and the dry ground into water springs all along from beginning to end, it is this mighty action of God. Very well then, that comes to us in a practical way like this this evening, doesn't it? That you and I have no need to do anything in order to have this great salvation. The Son of God has done it all. Salvation is a free It isn't a program which we are set on to in order to earn forgiveness. God forgives us for one reason only, and that is that he has punished our sins in the person of his own son. It isn't our pleading, it isn't our repentance, it isn't our works. Salvation is a free gift. It is given to us for nothing. That's why you can receive it now at any moment. That's why you need never wait or tarry. It's no use saying, well, now I'm rather interested in this. I can see that I'm a sinner and I want to go to heaven. I want to be a Christian. I'm going to decide, therefore, that I'm going to. Not at all, my friend. The moment you say that, you've gone wrong. you just come as a pauper, And you receive the free gift of God. It's all been done. It was all done nearly 2,000 long years ago in that amazing transaction on the cross on Calvary's hill. The perfect, complete, full salvation was prepared there because I hear the Son of God saying, have you heard him saying it? It is finished. Everything that was necessary to save you and me, I mean by that, to get rid of our guilt, to blot out our sins, to reconcile us to God, to make us children of God, everything that was necessary for that was done there. It's all been done. It was done before you were ever born into this world. There's nothing left for you to do except to believe and see that it was done there and to receive the free gift of salvation. You see what a complete reversal it is of everything we've ever thought. But my dear friends, this is God's way. This is the Christian salvation. It was the thing, you see, that Martin Luther came to see. You read read all about this film of Martin Luther today, quite right. But you know, Martin Luther became the man he was, and they're making this film of him and showing it uh, simply because he saw one thing. It's this very thing to which, I've been calling your, to which I've been calling your attention this evening. There was that excellent young man, that monk, that man who wanted to be godly, that young man who wanted to know God. So he becomes a monk. And you look at him in his cell. There he is, fasting, believing that that would help him. Doing good deeds and giving alms, studying the scripture, trying to perfect himself, trying to put himself right with God, taking his sacraments, believing as his church had taught him that grace came materially in and through the sacraments, that as he ate that bread, he was eating the very body of the Son of God. He believed that was going to put grace into him, mechanically, inject it into him as it were. He was doing all these things and yet remained miserable and unhappy and sad and ill at ease. He followed all the other methods. But I mustn't keep you. You remember the story. Suddenly, in reading the scriptures, he saw how wrong it all was. And this phrase flashed upon his soul. The Holy Spirit opened his mind to see it. The just shall live by faith. He saw that he's got nothing to do. That it had all been done. That he but had to receive it. Christ had done everything. He need kill himself no more. Christ had been killed, and there it had come to him as a free gift of God. And you remember what happened? He began to sing. He hadn't been singing before. If you try to fit yourself to meet God, you won't have much time for singing. You'll be so conscious of failure that you'll go the rest of your life mourning. But the moment he saw this, he began to sing. He began to rejoice. He said, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the to the children of men. I was a barren wilderness. Nothing grew in me. My soul was empty and void. But now, water springs are bubbling up. And he began to write his great hymns. And the verses and the tunes. And the whole reformation followed. And all began to sing with him. It was just through seeing this truth. That salvation desiderates and postulates nothing in us except that we see and recognize and confess our barrenness, our emptiness, and our woe. That we cry out unto the Lord in our distress and that we discover that he has done everything that is needed to be done in his only begotten Son in order to deliver us. Full salvation, free salvation, all in Christ. Not the righteous, sinners. Jesus came to save. My dear friend, did you know that? Had you realized that? Is it not the case that you haven't been rejoicing and singing until this very night? Because you would never seen that. You'd always gone on on that other idea that you as a church member and as a good person and as a moral person and an imitator of Christ and an imitator of the saints, you are going to make yourself a Christian. That's the essential and the final fallacy. The answer to it is this. He maketh the wilderness standing water and the dry ground springs of water, Just turn to him, cry out unto him, and he will answer and reveal to you the full provision, even in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then you will be ready and glad and eager to receive the invitation of the psalmist who says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his his wonderful works to the children of men, yes, the most wonderful work of all, the strange work upon the cross. Amen.